0: Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your live local news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
1: The state assembly unanimously approved a bill yesterday that would set time requirements for the testing of rape kits. The bill requires that a kit be tested within 60 days of its receipt at the state crime lab, reports the Capitol Times. The bill also establishes procedures for collecting and processing rape kits. Until the bill's enactment, there has been no statewide protocol. This bipartisan effort to solve the problem has been underway since last session. The bill's sponsors are Republican Representative David Steffen of Howard and Republican Senator Jesse James of Altoona. The bill is expected to pass in the state Senate and to be signed into law by Governor Evers.
0: The American Lung Association released their report on Wisconsin's AIR today. That report covers the years 2019 through 2021. In general, the report found significant improvements, at least in some areas, worsening conditions in others. For example, Milwaukee County experienced fewer days of unhealthy levels of high ozone than in previous years. But Racine County has the highest ozone rates in the state. That's largely due to what is known as air transport of ozone from the Chicago metro area. More troubling is the greater occurrence of spikes in particulate pollution. These are tiny motes of soot and diesel exhaust that are associated with asthma and other lung diseases. The Milwaukee area is ranked 46th in the nation for year-round particulate pollution.
1: The Little White Schoolhouse in Ripon, known as the birthplace of the Republican Party, has been moved for the sixth time in its history. City officials hope that the new location across town will attract visitors during the 2024 Republican National Convention. But the move will come at a cost, as it will likely cost the building its designation as a National Historic Landmark, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. In March, the city was warned by the National Historical Registry that if it moved the building, it would lose its historical designation. It will retain its state recognition as a historic place. The GOP was organized in the building in 1854 as a protest against the westward expansion of slavery.
0: The Dane County Black Caucus announced that it will support the latest proposal to build a new county jail. This follows negotiations of an 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 agreement with Sheriff Calvin Barrett on a number of criminal justice and law enforcement issues. Among the issues in the agreement is the removal of federal prisoners to surrounding counties and the transfer of the Huber facility operations to the Department of Human Services. Another significant agreed point of accord is the use of mental health specialists instead of deputy sheriffs when intervening in mental health crises. The plan, which goes before the Dane County Board for a final vote tomorrow night, would move money away from already completed projects that came in under budget and into the coffers of the Dane County Jail Plan.
1: Following the swearing-in of eight new alders yesterday, the Madison Common Council decided on who will serve as the next leader of the council. After two votes, District 16 Alder J.L. Curry was elected as the new Common Council president. Curry will be the second black woman in history to serve as council president and previously served as council vice president, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. District 10 Alder Yannette Figuera Cole was then elected as Council Vice President. Council presidents and vice presidents are elected once every year.
0: The City of Madison announced today that the Food Scrap Recycling Program will be returning to the East Side Farmers Market for the 2023 season. The program is sponsored in partnership with Sustained Dane and Neighborhood Food Solutions and will be available at the McPike Park. Farmer's Market every Tuesday between 4 and 7 p.m. Last year, more than five tons of food scraps were received at the Farmer's Market. (coughs) Pardon me, the Farmer's Market food scraps drop-off sites. The materials acceptable in this program are the same as would be suitable for a backyard compost bin. This includes coffee grounds, eggshells, raw fruits, and vegetables. The Food Scraps Recycling Program at the South Madison Farmer's Market will return next month. And those are the headlines for this evening. On to the rest of the day's top stories now.
1: Back in 2019, Governor Tony Evers signed an executive order calling for Wisconsin to move to 100% carbon-free electricity by the year 2050. Since then, a number of projects both here in Madison and across the state have been greenlit to get Wisconsin on that path. Earlier today, Governor Evers met with local leaders across the state to highlight some of those projects and the path forward. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more.
2: Governor Tony Evers met with local leaders from across the state today to tout the strong relationship between union workers and the environment. That comes after Governor Evers signed an executive order today to create a new commission to help shape environmental and clean energy solutions across the state. That executive order creates a Green Ribbon Commission to work in close partnership with the state's Task Force on Climate Change to create and manage a new Green Innovation Fund. The Green Innovation Fund, or Green Bank, will utilize private and federal funds to help spur projects that aim to combat the climate crisis while creating jobs. Some of those projects were highlighted today at the Training Center for the International Union of Painters and Allied Trains, or IUPAT, in Fitchburg. There, mayors and local leaders from seven Wisconsin cities joined Governor Evers to tout infrastructure projects across the state. All the projects named today were paid for, at least in part, by federal funding. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway began with the upcoming Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT. With construction already underway, BRT is set to take off next year with a fleet of brand new electric buses. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that BRT is the perfect example of the strong relationship between union labor and green energy projects.
3: We're going to be able to provide more frequent and reliable service for riders, to connect them with jobs, and those 46 electric buses will improve air quality and reduce our carbon pollution. And those infrastructure improvements are accompanied by good-paying union jobs. From the LIUNA workers who will be building the bus rapid transit system to the Teamsters who will operate it, it's all happening thanks to the unprecedented levels of federal investment we're seeing in infrastructure and in our communities.
2: Sheboygan Mayor Ryan Sorensen says that even if big environmental infrastructure projects don't look exciting at the outset, they can still bring major and needed improvements to their communities. Now, Sheboygan, we have some awesome projects coming down the line as well, working with Senator Baldwin's office through the um, Infrastructure Act. We got a six million dollar grant to build a pedestrian bridge uh, right on our riverfront. Well, pedestrian bridge might not seem like a big impactful project, However, it creates and connects two economies on our waterfront, but also revitalizes and cleans up a former historic industrial site um, along a riverfront as well. So it's not only cleaning up the environment, it's also spurring economic activity and also making sure that we're increasing pedestrian activity as well. David Solberg is the deputy city manager for the city of Eau Claire. There, he points to a bridge that after years of disrepair had to be closed due to structural issues. With a tight budget, Solberg says that without federal funding, it would be difficult for them to find the money to repair the bridge.
0: This is a bridge that we um, had struggled with in the past as a city. It had been as early as 2016. Uh, we had an estimate to do some rehab on it for $2.5 million. And in relation, we spend about $6 million on our entire street projects a year and that was a budgetary constraint that we weren't able to take on for an extensive rehab so we're working through the process and now we have a 13 and dollar cost for that to replace it so with the, the lack of being able to raise revenue at the at the local level short of referendums and other not very desirable outcomes Uh, Money from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act is essential for us to help fix our bridges.
2: Governor Evers says that he will release more information on the Green Ribbon Commission in the coming months. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Woogie-Hout.
0: First responders from Wisconsin and across the Midwest will gather this week to learn the best ways to deal with emergencies involving Electric vehicles. General Motors and the University of Illinois Fire Service Institute will train EMTs and firefighters how to safely navigate components they might not be familiar with. Here's Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection.
4: The auto industry and public agencies are looking ahead to a bigger transition to electric vehicles, and it's not just adding more charging stations. EMTs and firefighters in the Midwest are being offered training in responding to EV accidents. First and second responders from Wisconsin and surrounding states will gather in suburban Chicago this week to learn about high voltage components and other unique aspects of these vehicles. General Motors and the University of Illinois Fire Service Institute are hosting the event. GM engineer Joe McLean says there's a lot of new information to know in keeping everyone safe in situations like a car fire. We
5: make the recommendation to not pierce the battery pack, you know, but look for ways to get that water inside and One way is to make the vehicle like a hot tub, fill it up from (laughs) the inside.
4: He says this approach is more effective than spraying all over the exterior with the water running off and not reaching the heat source. In addition to battery and EV technology, McLean says the free training dispels misconceptions. This week's sessions are on Wednesday and Thursday. And while the training is open to all first responders, McLean says it's particularly important for rural EMTs and firefighters many of whom are volunteers and may not have the same training as professionals.
5: Most of the fire services in the United States, the vast majority are from volunteer fire departments. Where we've gone around the country and where we've targeted the certain areas that we deliver this training at, we have seen a tremendous outpouring of support and appreciation for delivering this training.
4: McLean says technology for electric-powered vehicles has surfaced a number of times throughout automotive history. And with a big buildup taking shape, he says the public should have confidence that key preparations continue to move forward as well.
5: The future of electrification is real. It is something that the industry and folks who develop standards and think about this have taken very seriously over the last several decades.
4: Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
1: Yesterday, the state's powerful GOP-controlled Joint Finance Committee blocked the purchase of around 70,000 acres of forest around the Pelican River in northern Wisconsin. In what would have been the largest conservation project in state history, the State Department of Natural Resources is now $4 million short of buying and protecting the land. To learn more about the issue and why Republican lawmakers blocked the move, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Danielle Kading, reporter with Wisconsin Public Radio. Now just to
2: start, Danielle, tell me about the Pelican River Forest and why the DNR is looking to purchase this land.
3: Yeah, so the Pelican River Forest, um, it's about 70,000 acres of land, private forest land, that the Conservation Fund bought in 2021. And the hope was that they could set it aside for public use and logging. And they've been working with the Department of Natural Resources conservation easements for that property. Um, And so as part of that, they were working to secure $4 million in stewardship funding, which is uh, the state's uh, land purchase program, to help pay for $15.5 million conservation easement on about 56,000 acres of that forest. Um, And uh, yesterday, or I should say on Tuesday, the Joint Committee on Finance rejected state funding from that program for setting that aside um, in the Pelican River Forest.
2: And now let's get into that a little bit. Why was that blocked by the uh, state's Joint Finance Committee yesterday?
3: Well, Republican lawmakers on the committee, you know, basically they voted along party lines to reject this funding. And those who spoke, like Republican Representative Mark Bourne of Beaver Dam, highlighted local concerns about the project. There are a couple of towns, uh, the towns of Monaco and Sugar Camp, that have passed resolutions against this project. Um, They have voiced concerns about the 30-day time frame to provide input on this proposal, and, you know, the town of Monaco in particular uh, wanted to preserve some of the land running along state highways that run through their town for commercial and residential development. Um, And that is something that State Senator Mary Felskowski, a Republican from Irma, um, had highlighted, and she's been vocal. And prior to the hearing was the only GOP lawmaker to publicly voice opposition to taking land up north off the tax rolls, as she called it, and putting it into perpetuity, which would limit options for local growth in the area, although the conservation fund has said that this is land that would remain on the tax rolls and continue to contribute revenue um, if it was set aside for public use and logging.
2: And speaking of uh, Mary Felskowski there, she was the lone anonymous objection to this a couple of months back here. What can you sort of tell me about that anonymous objection? And you sort of went into why she was objected to it, but sort of tell me how that worked.
3: Sure. So the way things work on the Joint Committee on Finance is that they can, once a department you know notifies them that they'd like to use funding for a project, they have 14 days. Um, to respond, 14 working days to say whether say nothing and then the project would therefore be approved, or to object to it. And right now, lawmakers don't have to publicly name themselves when they make objections. They can raise anonymous objections. Even though Governor Tony Evers' budget would seek to change that and eliminate the ability of legislators to, you know, remain anonymous if they raise objections to these projects. And in particular, you know, again, she was concerned about taking public or taking private land um, off the tax rolls up north. And it's become kind of a, an issue where it is a, sort of an issue of whether or not the committee is violating state law and how they're pursuing this process of, of objecting to projects. There's language in the law that they have to follow. And basically, they're not following it to a T. At least that's what the legislative council um, has said in a review last year. And so um, there's some discussion about whether or not the DNR or the Evers administration could award this funding anyway for the Pelican River Forest.
2: And I want to get into that in just a moment here. But I I want to ask you a little bit about, I know some Democrats in the legislature are now raising some concerns about the transparency of this process here. What can you sort of tell me about
3: that? Yeah, basically, it just goes back to what I had said previously about raising anonymous objections. You know, they feel that this process of objecting to projects has been conducted in secrecy and that lawmakers you know, typically don't name themselves, unlike Mary Felskowski, who made her objections public. And um, when they do raise objections, they said that it's amounted to a pocket veto because they'll raise objections and say that a hearing will be scheduled um, to evaluate the merits of the project, and then they never schedule one, and that leaves these projects in limbo. Um, And there have been several that have not received funding for that reason where Governor Tony Evers later stepped in and provided federal COVID-19 relief to fund those projects and allow them to move forward. So Representative Evan Goike, a Democrat from Milwaukee, has said that this current process is broken. And he criticized GOP lawmakers for not putting their names to their objections and said that he would like to see, you know, this brought into the day, into the sunlight and that he would like to see more uh, public discussion surrounding the merits of these projects rather than basically what he said amounts to a pocket veto.
2: And now one thing that you sort of mentioned before was that there's some environmental groups that are saying that Governor Evers may have some power to to step in here and help this project along. What can you tell me uh, a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, so it gets pretty complicated. The law states that a a department or an agency can obligate money for a project if the committee's co-chairs do not notify that department within 14 working days that the committee has scheduled a meeting. And that's the key thing right there is the the statute says has scheduled. With the objection to the Pelican River Forest, for example, the committee's co-chairs wrote a meeting will be scheduled. And so uh, Wisconsin Legislative Council review of the language distinction here found that the state's Finance Committee may not be following the law to delay DNR's obligation of stewardship funds in cases like this because of that has scheduled versus will scheduled issue there. But despite that, uh, there's kind of a question of whether a state courts would jump in here to resolve any dispute if it were raised, and they've historically been reluctant to interfere. Uh, According to the legislative council's memo and Wisconsin Watch reported that the DNR previously raised this issue um, with other conservation projects that were held up without a hearing. But the Evers administration declined to comment on the legal issues surrounding that and no complaints have been filed with the state regarding uh, the committee's process so far.
2: And, And outside of Evers stepping in, does this project have any sort of path forward going from here?
3: Well, if the conservation groups like Gathering Waters are to be believed, you know, he could step in and just award the funding anyway. Um, There's always alternative sources of funding that could be used. I don't know if that might be um, other federal sources potentially that could be used to fund this project. The DNR has previously said that they may need to seek a landowner donation or that they would have to launch a fundraising campaign to make this project happen. But clearly there were concerns from local communities, and the DNR Secretary, Adam Payne, has said that he wants to address those issues and concerns with the project. And he also said that moving forward that he would like to provide more time for local governments to weigh in on these stewardship proposals. So um, it'll be something that we're following is whether or not this project may move forward under some other means.
2: I've been talking with Daniel Kading, reporter with WPR, about the Joint Finance Committee blocking a massive land conservation effort yesterday. You can read more of Daniel's reporting over at WPR.org. Danielle, thank you so much for talking with me.
3: Thanks for having me on.
0: The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
1: Last week, state archaeologist Jim Skibo died during a routine dive in Lake Mendota. Sometimes referred to as the People's Archaeologist, Skibo is remembered for his passion and enthusiasm. Back in 2021, Skibo even helped with the recovery of a 1,200 year old canoe in Lake Mendota, one of the oldest boats ever found in the Great Lakes region. In 2021, Skibo joined a public affair host, Bert Zipperer, along with Ho Chunk Historic Preservation Officer Bill Quackenbush, to talk about the discovery.
2: This canoe was found, but it was created in the year about 850 AD and I just want to put some historic context on this Madison was in the midst of the effigy moan building era Cahokia the largest indigenous city in the what's now the US hadn't been built yet corn growing agriculture was just about to start in this region around the world the first printed book had just happened in China coffee was just discovered in Ethiopia algebra was invented Charlemagne was in Europe the Vikings were sacking London and here people built a dugout canoe. Talk about this canoe, would you please?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, that, I love those <laughs> other things that were happening at 850. Yeah, this is a significant uh, find. It's the oldest, um, near mostly intact water vessel in Wisconsin. There is a older, a portion of an older dugout, dugout canoe that um, s- seems kind of similar to this one because it's also made out of white oak, but it's a it's a significant find. I think the most significant thing for me is that it seems to a fishing boat and what people did during this time typically, we find quite a few dugout canoes in North America, but they're mostly found in shallow water because it was the tradition to sink the boats in the fall to save them, hide them, preserve them and then bring them up again in the spring for use. This one was found in deeper water and it had net sinkers in it presumably that were attached to a net. So this canoe has a, has a different story. Um, this was probably Wisconsin's first shipwreck. <laughs> and so it, I, to, because of that it's, it's, you know, I think it's particularly interesting. Another interesting fact is the, this is the first conclusive evidence we have for inland fishing with nets. where um, We have everything kind of in context. So it's a, it's a really interesting, cool find and, and I'm always happy to be a part of it.
7: And Bill, talk about your perspective yeah yeah so several months ago um it was interesting to receive uh, an email from a historic site or the state a state office over there uh in regards to their um interest in uh, raising a double canoe the south side of the lake Mendota water and um at the time i think that there was an all points bulletin out to uh, tribe indigenous to this area and uh, being the busiest time of year for uh, tribal historic preservation officers and and tribes in general, finding the time to actually um, show up for that uh, short period, of, you know, of, of raising the canoe out of the water, was going to become a task. It ended up being, I believe, on a Tuesday, which offset some of that that ruckus that takes care, of, you know, Kate, you know, takes place on Mondays. Mm-hmm. Well, that said, I did it in passing. I I, I come through. I had several other projects in Madison that um, I could, you know, uh, entertain, taking care of, um, but this ended up being a little bit longer time um, uh, for them. Uh, when I first arrived, you know, uh, where everybody was congregating to do this, a, a small portion of the Bay of uh, Lake Mendota, and you could see the uh, water crafts out there and didn't look like much was going on. And, but then pretty slow, you know, soon they started coming towards, you know, uh, where we were on the beach there. And before you know it, the, you know, they had told told this, uh, this Dalau canoe, yeah, and the crowd there was interesting enough in itself. You know, they had the local uh, news media, of course, uh, local and state, you know, representatives. You know, I was glad to be invited to, you know, the gathering as well. Uh, I mean, you also had local residents there that were just, you know, eager to find out what was going on. I mean, there was official-looking vehicles sitting around there, and there was people parking in the park or you don't know the park. So that's always. You know, telltale sign right uh with that said uh, once it was raised there and brought up and you know uh, everything calmed down everybody went their separate ways on there we had a chance to go back and reflect upon what had taken place uh, uh, within our own tribe talking to my staff here the next week of what was uh, taking place there and and how it related to our steep presence in the Madison area through uh, since time of memorial in our oral history for example and the, the lakes themselves and how they were created by the last uh, several glacier episodes and how we lived alongside these, you know, these, these ice, ice, you know, this ice formation, um, the development of and the inclusion of the first oaks coming into this region and the use of that. And we still refer to the white oak, for example, in Ho Chunk tradition as our sacred tree. One of the first, you know, trees that brought food and other sustenances in life. And here with these dugouts, you know, uh, a, a type of wood, and you know, it just so happens being white oak lasts longer, right? You know, and then your thought that it now were indigenous to these areas uh, predominantly before the white oak came in here. So, in short, this dugout means a lot in that it shows a steep presence of humankind, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in the Madison area. And for the Ho Chunk to have oral history of a, a steep, intact, you know, relationship to this region here, that's uh only been somewhat disturbed during the historic periods they say when uh, there was these forced removals that took place exactly uh, but then you take this footprint of when it was you know dated 18 or what is it 850 ad and that there there was you know our ancestors living here in abundance and and we were a, a culture of and a, a a group of people here that had it quite going on even then you know and a lot of people like to look back at our Native history and you know there you often hear these you know derogative terms of savage like and living from hand to mouth right and and that they uh, travel from here to there and we often tell our youth that we we never Traveled outside our ancestral footprints. We mm-hmm. always stayed indigenous to where we are. And we still fight for that to this day. We weren't, you know, aboriginals. We were, we were people that were this uh, tied to this region indigenously, and, and we still maintain that thought. So, so this dugout is going to, for us, really serve as an excellent educational tool, for, tool for our youth.
4: Well, Bill, thank you so much. Jim, you have a comment?
6: Yeah, I, I, I love that perspective, Bill. I haven't heard you say that before. In being there, I had a different perspective because I was bringing the canoe in, and. I've I've found a lot of significant things in my career, and and in some ways, maybe more significant, but not in a real important way. Now that I'm the state archaeologist, people's archaeologist, where I do things more in public, when we brought the canoe in, I've never never discovered anything with a crowd, for example. And when we brought it in, it was a palatable feeling. People clapped. People cried. I mean, it, it. it made me realize that people like to be a part of this and as Bill mentioned seeing something that's 1200 years old mm-hmm. and seeing something that's 1200 years old that your ancestors made exactly. I would love there's a great picture with Bill touching the canoe and I think I would love to touch something that my ancestors made that's 12,000 years old and so um, and I'm thrilled that Bill wants to get the youth involved because you know the craftsmanship in this canoe mm-hmm. I make I'm, I'm occasionally make bad furniture and I, I use white oak all the time and it's, I'm thrilled to hear that it's the sacred tree of the ho-chunk I mean that's a part I didn't know Bill so thanks for sharing that but it's really a hard wood how do you cutting down a tree hewing out a canoe and getting it to float I think
2: unbelievable
6: <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable It uh, would have taken hundreds of hours and p- knowing really what you're doing so so that part of it too I think we're gonna learn more about the craftsmanship as we we're gonna do a scan of it we're gonna try to learn how it was built and do all kinds of fancy scientific things with it to understand this life history.
7: So well, you know as Jim mentioned and you know uh, and, and the shadow has thought there how 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 did they in fact uh, make make those items of wool? other than the knowledge of you know the process of You know developing and and passing it on down through generations to retain that knowledge right Uh, no different than today you know people come and go our elders try to teach our youth ten percent of their knowledge right and and oftentimes things are lost but you need to adapt through time as humans or will cease to exist they say you know Mm -hmm. as our you know of our the ancient ones we're talking about those mastodons and short-faced bear and all these other animals that no longer exist here and us as humans you know Ho chunk you know we talk about the or really how we had to transition into a different type of life. And but this that all stands the test of time.
1: That was Bill Zipperer talking with Ho-Chunk Historic Preservation Officer Bill Quackenbush and state archaeologist Jim Skibo, who died last Friday. That was just a portion of their full conversation. You can find the full interview online at WORTFM.org. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure.
0: Well, we had some very spring-like thunderstorms past the area today, even if the temperatures weren't especially spring-like. Uh, Even so, it was nice to at least have that spring-like sound in the air. Those thunderstorms were associated with a warm front just to our south. In fact, at mid-afternoon when the temperatures here were still just barely out of the 30s, the thermometer jumped basically 10 degrees for every tier of counties that you went south. So you actually hit 70 degrees by the time you got into Ogle County, which is the one south of Rockford. So this was a very uh, pronounced, very concentrated warm front sitting to our south, and it's still down there. That front was actually sitting overhead here. It was up at about four or 5,000 feet uh, which you could see if you had a look at a prognostic sounding of the air column, and we do make those available on the WORT weather webpage. Uh, it was, wasn't was 70 degrees up there, of course, but because air cools when you lift it, but it was up in the low 50s up there above us, and uh, that warmth, along with the additional moisture that was flowing in up at that height on the low-level jet coming in from the southwest, provided the energy needed to boost the atmosphere vertically up into those thunderstorms this morning... Indeed, the lingering of the low-level low jet over the area just north of the Wisconsin River through the midday hours ended up putting down a good couple or three inches of rain up in the southern Sauk, Sauk and Columbia counties. If you have a look at the uh, water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage up in the featured graphics, you can see an upper ridge approaching Wisconsin currently from the plains and an upper trough then following closely behind it with its pit now about over the Four Corners region on the southwest. And if you look closely, you can see a couple of stronger impulses in the winds streaking through the, uh, that trough to the west and ejecting northeastward. The first one of those blew up the storms this morning, and there's now another one lifting northeastward out of southeast Colorado and Kansas. That impulse is going to provide renewed lifting and left uh, uh, low-pressure development along the warm front to its east, swirling it counterclockwise later tonight and erupting another round of convection, first out over uh, western Iowa, where the Storm Prediction, currently, uh, Storm Prediction Center currently has a tornado watch. And those storms will then race northeastward towards us, probably crossing southern Wisconsin as we get uh, on towards the uh, hours just before dawn tomorrow. The short-range, high-resolution computer models are indicating a couple or three waves of convection most likely passing tomorrow. That one pre-dawn, followed by a second one in perhaps the mid-morning hours, not a final one associated with the incoming cold front in the mid-afternoon hours. Uh, I don't think we'll get much uh, clearing of the skies between uh, the rains, but the warm front will be surging northward through most of the listening area after the first round of storms in the morning. So temperatures and dew points will uh, basically head upward from dawn onward tomorrow. Temperatures in the upper 60s, in fact, are possible by late afternoon uh, if we clear a bit. And with dew points up in the mid-50s, we'll have sufficient energy by the late-day hours in the low-level environment, along with plenty of low-level shear and uh, perhaps some directional veering of the winds as well near the warm front to produce at least a conditional threat of severe thunderstorms, including possibly tornadic ones. We'll have a lot of spin in the atmosphere. The Storm Prediction Center has us currently in a marginal risk zone for severe weather tomorrow. That's an assessment you might want to keep your eye on for a possible upgrade. The passage of the cold front then tomorrow evening will usher in a quick drop in temperatures along with a clearing of the skies as the upper jet plows overhead tomorrow night from the southwest. And that looks to hold over us uh, into Friday morning, keeping us clear through that time, uh, clear to partly cloudy anyway, before the upper jet passes off to the east and allows uh, cooler air aloft to begin boiling up a stratocumulus deck over us. Uh, But we should still make the mid-50s Friday before the center of the upper trough then passes Saturday and into Sunday and produces deep enough cloud generation, probably for passing showers, at least on Saturday. But back to tonight, the skies will remain mostly cloudy with temperatures holding in the low 40s on easterly winds at 10 to 17 17 miles per hour, coming down a little bit later on and veering more southeasterly as we go through the night. Showers and thunderstorms will then race northeastwards across the area probably after about 2 or 3 a.m., lasting then uh, into the morning hours, but possibly with some breaks in between lines of cells. And like this morning, small hail is uh, entirely possible with those uh, cells early tomorrow morning. Winds will then veer uh, southeast and south and uh, increase up to 10 to 15 miles per hour during the day, which will take temperatures steadily up. Uh, Into the low 60s by afternoon anyway, with dew points uh, surging into the mid and upper 50s. We should have a midday break in convection, the way it's looking, with a later day line then pushing in uh, after probably 2 o'clock or so in the afternoon. And any afternoon clearing that we might see and uh, warming will make that last round of storms more concerning. Winds will be veering quickly uh, west by late afternoon, The winds will be gusty around that incoming cold front as well, and then temperatures will drop uh, fairly rapidly to the 40-degree range by Friday morning with cloud cover clearing as well as we go through the overnight tomorrow, and winds coming down a bit too. Friday should then start mostly clear with uh, cumulus and stratocumulus developing in the late morning hours from uh, west to east. Temperatures will reach the uh, low, uh, possibly the mid-50s on uh, west-to-southwest winds up at 10 to 17 miles per hour. We'll clear a bit more again in the overnight with uh, lighter, more westerly winds. And Saturday will be mostly cloudy with a stratocumulus deck possibly thickening enough by the afternoon hours to throw down uh, passing episodes of sprinkly rains or, uh, yes, possibly even some light snow showers and spots, especially at higher elevations and further to the north. Northwesterly winds up at 12 to 20 miles per hour are going to hold temperatures in the low and mid-40s. And we're going to stay windy and cold and still mostly cloudy, I'm afraid, through Sunday before the upper trough ejects uh, for better warming as we get into next week. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 40 degrees. The dew point temperature is 35. We're uh, overcast up at about up around 4,900 feet, though the uh, sprinkly rains that were going last hour have... Ended here. Uh, Winds are out of the east-northeast at twelve miles per hour and the barometer is uh generally steady at about twenty nine point nine one inches of mercury.
1: We go now to April nineteen sixty-five for protests for and against the war in Vietnam, the changing of the political guard at City Hall, and a look at the cycle of racism. Stu Levitan has the news from fifty eight years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the Sixties.
8: The they melt into a dream. Madison in the Sixties, April. 1965. There's a political point-counterpoint on April 1st. In the Social Sciences Building, several thousand students cram the corridors and classrooms for a 10-hour teach-in about the war in Vietnam, instigated by sociology professor William Sewell and organized by the Faculty Student Committee to End the War in Vietnam. From 2 o'clock until after midnight, 26 prominent faculty... Including Professors Merle Curdy, George Mosse, and Germaine Brie, give lectures and lead discussions on the causes and effects of the war. More than a thousand pack into room 230 for the concluding panel, starring Professor William Appleman Williams. The Wisconsin alumnus, noting the nearly unanimous opposition to the war from all the speakers, is not impressed. Quote, The overall result was to combine lectures with political harangues, it editorializes. A rational and responsible effort at constructive criticism of American foreign policy was impossible under these unfortunate circumstances. The week-long protests culminate the next day in a noon rally of about a thousand on Library Mall, featuring remarks by Sewell, Williams, and former National Security Council analyst Marcus Raskin. While the teaching is underway in social sciences, over at the law school, the Committee to Support the People of South Vietnam holds a rally of about 200 featuring acclaimed war photojournalist Dickie Chappelle, sister of geology professor Richard Meyer. The Shorewood native, who's covered war since World War II, says she's, quote, honored to attend the first counter demonstration in support of the war. Chappelle has spent more than a year in Vietnam and is soon to return on assignment for the National Observer, after which she plans to retire. The Committee to Support the People of South Vietnam, led by a half-dozen students active in fraternities and campus politics, also drafts a petition in support of the war effort. In four days, they collect 6,000 signatures. On April 25th, committee leaders visit the White House, where they present the petitions to presidential aide McGeorge Bundy, the national security advisor who recommended the February bombing raids that sparked the formation of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam. As they present the petition, about 250 picket outside the gates in a protest organized by the Students for a Democratic Society. And the UW campus is also the scene in early April for shows by musical legends. On the 2nd, Count Basie headlines the military ball in the Great Hall. Admission is three fifty per couple. On the 9th, Jerry Lee Lewis proves he's still the killer at the Alpha Epsilon Pi Ape Party, featuring a bevy of jungle maidens. On Sunday night, April 4th, Joseph Bufo Trenigli is working at his uncle Frank Skiro's liquor store on Regent Street. Bufo needs to get something in the back, so Frank's brother Dominic Skiro that's Madison Police Department Detective Dominic Skiro, is watching the store. That's when a masked gunman, Nathan Lee Thomas, comes in, demands all the money, and fires straight at him. It is only the leather-encased metal badge in Sciro's inner coat pocket that blocks the bullet from his chest. Skiro subdues and arrests Thomas, who is sentenced to eight years for armed robbery, but found not guilty of attempted murder apparently because Skiro's station house comments to reporters after the incident apparently differed from his trial testimony. sense that press reports thus affected the verdict, Police Chief Wilbur Emery restricts press access to the police headquarters for the foreseeable future. On April 6th, Dane County Clerk Otto Feske wins a landslide victory to succeed Mayor Henry Reynolds. Liberal Democrat Fesky carries 19 of 22 wards in beating conservative Republican businessman and former Reynolds campaign manager George Hall. Feskey lays out an ambitious agenda in his inaugural address on April 20th. Settle the fee dispute with the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation over the abandoned Monona Terrace and start a new auditorium process. Identify and acquire land for the sorely needed Eastside Hospital, meet the great need of improved public transportation, establish a Madison Area Planning and Policy Advisory Committee to pursue greater cooperation and coordination with area municipalities and improve relations with the university. The dismal state of town-gown relations are also a big concern to outgoing Daily Cardinal editor Gail Bensinger, whose valedictory editorial offers, quote, some reflections on becoming a has-been. I don't really understand just why students are so generally disliked here, she writes on the 15th, but people are antagonistic and make no effort to hide their resentment. The most obvious way they take this out is economically. Compare the standards of housing near the campus with those of the rest of the city, the deplorable conditions and the outrageous rents, and you'll see just how soft a touch students are considered. Compare the prices in the grocery stores and restaurants and drugstores. I can't begin to count the number of times I've been insulted by total strangers as I've walked around downtown. We students are hated and criticized by many, and we pay through the nose for it. On the 27th, a sobering report from the City Equal Opportunities Commission on the vicious cycle of racism. Quote, The principle of open housing has been generally accepted. But because Negroes do not have the economic resources to move to better neighborhoods, there has been a concentration in certain areas. Equal employment opportunities are also accepted in principle, but in many cases Negroes are not qualified for jobs available. Therefore, in Madison, there is not basically a question of denying civil rights as such, but there is the problem of Negroes being unable to attain equal status because of lack of resources. This, in turn, means lack of qualifications, education, training, and consequently poorer jobs and lower pay. This makes for a vicious circle. Negroes live in poorer and more crowded homes, which leads to greater delinquency and crime, more broken homes, less preparation for jobs, a higher ratio than whites on relief and aid to dependent children. Therefore, we have more than a civil rights problem. We have an economic problem, a relief problem, a slum problem, and a tax base problem, all of which affect the image of the city. And on April 29th, President Lyndon Johnson ends a long and embarrassing struggle over the federal judgeship for the Western District of Wisconsin by appointing James E. Doyle Sr. to the bench. Doyle, former chair of the State Democratic Party and a former vice president of the Madison Police and Fire Commission, is married to Ruth Doyle, vice president of the Madison School Board and a former state legislator. Doyle is confirmed in three weeks and sworn in June 22nd. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our sole reporter was Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Bert Bert Zipperer with A Public Affair and Stu Levitan. Chuck Hademan has been our on-air engineer this evening. I'm Glad this is ending. I can't talk anymore. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.
3: WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.